Hi, and welcome to Figure of Speech, a program from WRBH, where every week you can meet local poets and writers from the New Orleans community and listen to them share their work. Today, we'll be presenting a radio performance of local playwright Del McNeely's new work, An Atheist, a Priest, and a Jungian Analyst Walk into a Bar. To help set the scene, here's a bit of an introduction from the director. The play is intended to explore the art of conversation among thoughtful people with different views, an art that seems rarely practiced today. This is not to say that I don't have strong preferences and moral values, but to recognize that the whole person as well as the whole community is made up of many facets that deserve to be considered and aired with respect. Jung's concept of knowing our quote-unquote shadow encourages us to increase awareness of possibilities, ultimately giving us greater integrity within a wider degree of consciousness. In this play, the characters here argue, contradict, and accept each other, and they find ways to enjoy being together around music and light-hearted acts of kindness. So, with that said, here we go. An atheist, a priest, and a Jungian analyst walk into a bar... Roberto Colasso, renowned mythologist, wrote, To invite the gods into our affairs ruins our relationship with them, but sets history in motion. A life in which the gods are not invited is not worth living. It will be quieter, but there won't be any stories. And you could suppose that these dangerous invitations were, in fact, contrived by the gods themselves because gods get bored with men who have no stories. Welcome to Molly's Pub. Three friends meet here often to have a beer and talk. We're going to eavesdrop on them today. Dick Rollins is a retired professor and a professional debater who defends atheism. Carla Young is a Jungian analyst in private practice. Father Jim O'Brien a Catholic priest, is a college chaplain. It's late afternoon as we enter to see Molly, the proprietress, who thinks she's alone, sweeping to the music of Aretha Franklin. She's lip-syncing into her broom as a mic and dancing to the song R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Molly has a young helper, Ben, who will appear occasionally throughout the conversation. Molly is having a great time performing for herself when Professor Rollins enters. She stops abruptly and turns off the music. <laughs> oh, I thought I was alone. <laughs> Hello, Molly. You got a quiet table for us today. Sure, Dick. Nice to see you back. How about this table? How was your trip? Oh, it was fine, thanks, but... I'm sure glad to be home. I missed your food. Well, we're glad you're back. Will it be the usual bunch? Yes, three of us. It's a slow day today. Lots of room. Hi, Molly. Hello, Dick. Welcome back. Hi, Carla. What'll it be? Pitcher as usual? Yeah. Sounds good. Coming right up. I called the imam of the new mosque. But he said he's up to his ears, moving and getting settled. He said he appreciated our inviting him and would love to come some other time. You're going to have the Muslim? Whoa. I wonder what he drinks. Probably tea. I didn't know Muslims would meet in a place that serves alcohol. 
Are you concerned about serving him, Molly? Not at all. Just wondered if he will be comfortable. I understand they're pretty touchy. And I wouldn't want to serve him food that he disapproves of either, like ham or chicken and sausage gumbo. Well, he's been around the world. He probably knows what to expect. Do you think any of your customers will object to having a Muslim served here? Hmm, good question. Hadn't thought of that side of things. Let me see. So there's Buddy Brandt. We call him Buddy the Bigot, behind his back, of course. But he usually comes in much later than you guys. And if he did come in, I could head him off and keep him at a distance. Well, let's see. I know they like fruit, dates, oranges. Yeah. I sure wouldn't want to meet anyplace else. Oh, neither would I. I'm guessing if he found meeting in a bar unacceptable, he would have told you by now. He knows your reputation, Dick? Oh, yes, yes, he knows of me. But now, you know, I didn't ask about meeting in a place that serves alcohol. I'll ask him directly next time we speak. Oh, <laughs> are you afraid that I'm going to be too tough on him, Molly? Well, I've heard you debate. Oh, don't worry. I'll feel him out before saying anything confrontational. I'm just hoping we can have a good dialogue. I believe that meeting at a restaurant or bar is a matter of choice for most Muslims, but an imam may have more stringent rules. As for dialogue, well, you've faced a lot of situations. He does know your books, right, Dick? Yes. Don't worry, Molly. We'll be sure he feels comfortable. I imagine he's had to be a bit wary as well as busy. The fundamentalists haven't been too happy about a mosque in their neighborhood. Yep, this is going to be interesting. A Muslim in my restaurant. Never thought I'd see this. Bet my mother is laughing her head off in the afterlife somewhere. You know, if we have anything to worry about, Carla, from Islam, we can bet that on the Christians to find it. Are you thinking about Molly? Oh, no, no, not at all. She's much too wise to be a pious kind of Christian. Well... All right, how were the debates received? Mm, on a whole, well, there was one troublesome day with outside protesters against the Muslim delegation, but police kept a close presence. Oh, what? Was it ugly? No, 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 the moderators handled it well and quickly. But in that atmosphere, they're concerned about the growing number of immigrants, mostly Muslim. And I guess they would feel threatened if they see Islam only as represented by bin Laden, if they see them as determined to destroy Western culture and impose Sharia law. Mm, well, you know that I see all religions as totalitarian. That's nothing new. But Islam's a bit more, how shall I say, desperate. They claim to be the final word. No further inquiry needed. Judaism took us only so far, they said. One god in place of a group of deities vying for popularity and power. Christianity added Jesus, a god-man. But the angel said, no, that wasn't enough, and gave Muhammad the last word. So he claims to have the true word. Now, that's a bit more unsettling to me than the usual threat from religion. Well, I guess we'll have a chance to air some of these issues with our new colleague. Ah, here's Shabir. Oh, oh great. great. Thank you. I'm thirsty. <laughs> oh, it'll be interesting having him part of this community. As you said, 
Bin Laden thought the West was totally corrupt, preoccupied with entertaining and aggrandizing itself, and so needed to be destroyed. I can see how a Bin Laden or any visitor to our society coming from a moralistic milieu would be horrified if he saw us through TV and video games. We look like barbarians. He probably also couldn't get the concept of having the Amish and the Pentecostals and the Wiccans, Housewives of New Jersey, Narcotics Anonymous, and the rest all under one flag. And much less the idea that we consider that ability to mix and to tolerate all to be one of our finest qualities. Well, not only was bin Laden astounded by the incongruencies, he thought our Western civilization forced knowledge on humans that humans should not possess. What an idea! We know too much! Ah, you can imagine how that sits with me. Too much information. Astounding. And that sums up my opposition to religion in a nutshell, presented by an intolerant nut. <laughs> But sometimes I think like that, too. We, or I, have too much information. Enough with the data. If only we could go back and slow down the technology till our ethical minds catch up. Well, speaking of ethics, how's Fred doing? A bit overwhelmed with all the distractions on campus and in the philosophy department, too. You know, the political conflicts have gotten worse since you left. We really want to have you and Elaine over soon. He needs a relaxing evening with friends. Oh, hello. <laughs> so welcome back, Dick. Glad you're back, man. Sorry I'm late. I got waylaid by a parishioner. You say you a... got laid by a parishioner? Now watch yourself, Dick. We can't throw those comments around casually anymore. Mm -mm. We're in the Me Too climate. No... I just had to do a little spur-of-the-moment-on-the-spot counsel and then rushed over. But by God, it's a gorgeous day. Makes you feel glad to be alive. Well, I wouldn't go that far. Oh, Dick. Oh, all right. Seriously. So, you get stopped for on-the-spot confessions, Jim. That goes with the job. Jim, Dick spoke with the imam. He probably will join us next time. Oh, good, good. I'll have to brush up on my Quran. <laughs> Oh, wow. Something is going on back there. Have you ever thought about the fact that laughter is so important, such an essential part of the human experience, that every mythology except our own contains a trickster god? Jokes and humor are universal medicine. Well, Jesus is said to have performed some pretty good tricks. Changing water to wine, for instance, or multiplying the loaves and fishes? Oh, I'm sorry, Jim. I know you take all that seriously. But you know what they say. All religions are the same. Basically guilt with different holidays. Yeah, and Freud's joke, religion is guilt in a garment. <laughs> ah, trickster gods. Well, nothing is trickier than modern th physics. Laughter is the best response to some of its stranger paradoxes. Did you know that every time you drink a glass of beer, the odds are good that you will imbibe at least one molecule that passed through the bladder of Abe Lincoln? <laughs> here, here. And the chances are that you've breathed in a nitrogen atom that was once breathed out by a dinosaur. Here, here. Well, I could use some laughs. I guess there's guilt enough to go around with the latest new accusations of our bishop. Well, I wasn't going to bring it up, but... 
since you do. What a mess. Another scandal. How are you feeling about it? Oh, pretty awful. The people are so discouraged, much less the clergy. Wondering if it will ever end. The whole business of celibacy is coming into question, right? We, we thought it had quieted down for a while, but then all this new uncovering of child abuse, and now nuns. Well, that'll never be settled. Celibacy's inhumane. It's unnatural. Oh, but I know. You guys are trying to live the unnatural life. Well, Augustine thought it was a good idea, but then he was a saint. And he was focused on women, not young boys. Hmm. You know, there's an anecdote about Alfred Hitchcock. He was driving through London when he saw a priest talking to a small boy with his hand on the boy's shoulder. Hitchcock leans out the window and yells, Run, little boy, run for your life! Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. I don't know what the answer will be. Maybe marriage is in the future, but I don't know if that would help us. Seems there's less support for self-restraint in all walks of life at present. Certainly marriage seems to be no guarantee of fidelity or restraint from what I see. That's true. The breakdown of traditions and inhibition is across the board. And spilling over from the universities, there is so much turmoil there lately. Yes. Racial strife, gender politics, identity issues. But Jim, as to the fate of marriage, religion is not the answer as we see. In fact, it's responsible for much of the conflict, as the feminists will tell you. Did you know that the Catholic Church deliberately concealed information that would have honored women and sexuality? They deliberately suppressed early texts that placed women disciples in higher status, no doubt in order to discourage sexual freedom. And now we see the consequences of screwed-up sexuality. Now, not so fast, Dick. The devaluing of women didn't begin with the church. In fact, the church has tried to correct much of that, especially since the doctrine of the Assumption of Mary into heaven was proclaimed. But there is still a long way to go. The place of women the world over is not what it could be, not just in the church. The latest conflicts in the court about abortion are so hard to listen to, much less live through. Well, I've been talking with women who are quite involved in the feminist third movement. Catholics are typically pro-life, but many also pro-choice. And they have very interesting theological arguments in favor of abortion. They are thinking deeply about the meaning of the soul. How and why does it come into matter? Into what form of matter? Yes, I know those arguments. They're powerful. And you're on a couple of campuses now as chaplain, right, Jim? Well, that must be enlightening, hearing from those younger women. More like discouraging. The campuses are as divided as our political parties. Well, sure. The college kids are the first wave of new paradigms in any culture, and with the raging hormones to express them. Yes, but about abortion, I'm thinking of the degree of emotion that's on both sides. It really illustrates the power of the archetype to possess us. In this case, the archetype of the divine child. I've been fascinated by the power of it. The projection of the image and emotion of the divine around the infant and child, it's overwhelming. 
You know, you can't have a rational argument about abortion in some places. There's no reasoning allowed. People become enraged. Well, there are some factions who feel that women's studies have gone off the track and that things have gone downhill for women since they gained freedom, meaning the pill. Well, that's another factor related to the issue of celibacy. Do we need tighter restriction on the clergy or more freedom? Well, freedom seems to be problematical these days. Well, some feel that it led to the erosion of the family and the values that were once cultivated in the security of family structure. Families have become unraveled in the most complicated ways, and women get the brunt of the blame. All because they want equal degrees of freedom. But the patriarchal family is a new concept. It's really only a few hundred years in existence. It resulted in isolating women and restricting their movement. But humans became human through communal groups and matrilineal families with many caretakers, not in isolated single homes. You guys might like some snacking food. I brought you some pretzels. We'll have leftovers today, not much of a crowd. Oh, hi, Father Jim. What bad news, huh? Uh, you must feel under a lot of pressure. Oh, Molly, I wish you could join us. It'd be nice to have another woman at the table in case I need backup. Well, I'm trying to digest the latest breaking news on the church scandal. It's hit us so close to home now, in our own churches. Hard to think about all those victims. I pray for them every day. I guess like you, and you must hear some things, eh, Molly? You must hear some stuff. What do you think? Is it getting any easier to be a woman? I do hear a lot here. Even before the Me Too movement, look at what happened to our local woman candidate that ran for mayor here. That's true. No man has been put through the relentless scrutiny and blame. Criticism of her appearance, her clothes, her business... So many false allegations, exaggerated conspiracies, and warped views about her marriage. Right. So I joined the Women's March. But me, on the other hand, my life is so much better than my mother's. Is it? In what way? Well, for one thing, my mother fought for my right to own this bar when my dad died. As a single woman, I wouldn't have had that right in her day. She was fired up by her mother's struggle to get to vote, and she was not about to let me let go of this property. Well, I'm glad to know that. I didn't realize how you came to own this place. How's the future looking for us Catholics, Molly? Actually, Father Jim, I think I'm panentheist, but also Catholic. Are you asking if I think women should be priests? Oh, well, I wasn't asking of that, but, but yes, that, and, and not just that, but women's rights, women's rights in general. Women's place reminds me of an old nursery rhyme I used to tell my kids. There was an old woman tossed up in a basket 99 times as high as the moon, and what she was doing, I didn't dare ask it. For in her hands she carried a broom. Old woman, old woman, old woman, said I. Whither, oh, whither, oh, whither so high? To sweep the cobwebs from the sky. And I'll be with you by and by. 
I don't know what that means, Molly. How does it apply? Oh, see, you guys made up this story about God, alone up there in the sky, looking down. And then one day he comes down to earth and tries to tell us what we ought to be doing. Of course, we kill him. So he goes back up again. In this story, the woman is trying to take care of things. She comes from the earth, where women have always been at home. She goes up to try to clean things up, but she promises to come down again. Women get that. They know she'll be back. She belongs on Earth. Get it? My kids loved it. They wanted to hear it over and over. It made more sense to them than the virgin birth and the resurrection. A woman will stay connected to the Earth, even when she's trying to clean things out upstairs while men chase around high-blown ideas from their inflated positions. Oh, no offense to you guys. Well, thank you, Molly. That is a lot to think about. Want to sit in? Yeah, sometimes I hear you and I think I'd like to chime in with my two cents. But I couldn't take care of business and gab, too. You guys get into some deep stuff. Hell, I was a philosophy major in college, but... Now, that was many years ago. Everything's different now. Uh, you need another round or something? We're okay for now. Maybe it's going to take women to save the planet, cleaning up the earth, digging down and touching the source of life instead of escaping into the planets. Wow. That is kind of brilliant. She's describing the alchemist Dorn's three stages of the individuation process. One, unis mentalis. She abandons body, earth, to join mind and spirit for reflected focus. Two, when that's established, she resumes physical connection in the act of taking up her broom, sweeping the psyche, cleaning out the cobwebs and complexes before returning and reuniting spirit and body. And three, she returns to Earth, unis mundus, enjoying and sharing the fruits of her labor with the whole universe, heaven and Earth, symbolizing a personality that is integrated. A philosophy major. This is what a philosophy degree is worth today. Well, and of course, there's the question of agency in her story. Who's doing the tossing of the basket? Good question. But let's get back to the campus. I'm interested since I'm not there much anymore. Well, lucky you, you've got it made. Writing and lecturing, no teaching? Well, a little teaching. No, it's not all a bed of roses, though, traveling so much, but I won't complain. When I was last spending a lot of time on campus, things were beginning to unravel, but I gather it's getting worse. Well, we've lost the main function of the university, in my opinion. A university is meant to foster an exchange of ideas, but it's come to all about competing for the dollar. Whatever it takes, who cares about the curriculum? What courses will bring in the bucks? Got to get that stadium built, enlarged, improved. Yes, Fred feels the same. That is so demoralizing to an academic. 
the emphasis on STEM courses, it's understandable, but the bias against the humanities and liberal arts, it's beginning to feel tragic. It's disgusting. The level of thought in some administrators is appalling. Molly's a million times more conscious. But not only is the faculty undermined by the administrators, now the faculty has to worry about getting sacked by complaints from students who feel they're being treated insensitively. And that exacerbates the conflict between the philosophies. You have the essentialists and structuralists resisting the postmodernists, the classicists arguing with some of the women's studies feminists. And, and the sciences undermining the humanities. In addition to the usual problems with alcohol, we now have a much more complicated drug scene and social scene. Complaints about abuse of women, gays, LGBTQs, the learning disabled. And divisiveness promoted by white supremacists baiting social justice warriors, and so on. The concern over coddling and trigger words is enough. But the really tragic thing, we've had an increase of suicides and accidental deaths. Yes, I understand. The campus clinics are overworked and understaffed. I'm getting some of the overflow in my practice. They can't keep up with the number of kids seeking help. I could use more chaplains than I can realistically hope for. The astounding thing, though, is some kids manage to get a good education. But they have to have a lot going for them besides brains, guts, grit, and a good backup system. Yes, grit. Well, that eliminates the students who are single parents or just parents. Also, those who can't afford cars or gas, those holding two jobs... Hi, Dr. Young. Molly said you might like these. We made too many. Oh, thank you. Do I know you? You look familiar. Oh, uh, I'm Ben. I worked here last year, and you spoke to our class once, too. Of course. Well, you shot up a lot taller. It's good to see you again, and thanks for reminding me, Ben. No problem. Are you going to be around for a while? No, I'm off now. I've got band practice in 10 minutes. No, I mean around the restaurant, working. Oh, yeah. Like, on and off when I can. Okay. Well, we'll see you. Oh, what do you play? Oh, clarinet and sax. And sometimes I sit in on flute if they need me. You must be pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm glad I'm not a kid today. It's tough growing up and finding your footing in today's shifting sands. But, Jim, I don't think you're helping. What can you possibly tell those kids that can give them any solid ground? You and your chaplains have nothing to offer except for fantasies. I respect your good intentions, but you have no experience with mature sexual relationships, nothing but promises of divine intervention to keep them expecting help to come from out of the blue. Well, I would argue with you on both counts, Dick. I don't need to be in a sexual relationship to see why two people can't get what they need from each other. In some cases, it's easier to have clarity because I'm a single man and have so many opportunities to hear about what a woman needs. And believe me, 
you gain a lot of experience vicariously listening daily to every possible kind of suffering, as well as manifest craziness. Oh, yes, our professions are similar there. And on your other point, Dick, the church is one of the few institutions that young people can turn to today that encourages responsibility and independence. It's exactly because it reminds people of the eternal ground of being beneath their feet that enables them to go on, to keep on finding the guts and the grit to go on. In the midst of the mess on campus that we were just discussing, many kids find it real solace in spiritual life. They express gratitude towards us chaplains, and that's rewarding. But in the long run, that ground of being is not based in reality. At least, thanks for that, <laughs> we've some reason to hope that it can be argued away with someday. The ground is ground up in a fantastic story about a god who sends his own son to be sacrificed so that he could be worshipped properly. What kind of father does that? Demands a human sacrifice. Why in the world does he need a sacrifice this cannibalistic monster. Isn't there enough shedding of blood for him between religious wars in addition to natural death to us all? Well, I can't tell you why life on earth is bloody. It is and always has been, not just from the religious. Blood and guts is built into the nature from the bottom up. Every creature has threats from some potential violent predator. Every life is an adventure story. How long can we make it here alive? But rather than see God as a cannibal, we see him as showing us a less violent, bloody way with his son who teaches compassion and love and how to suffer and forgive. Well, I think that we have to try to keep a hopeful message alive. We can transcend the bloody and violent fight for existence. Humans are the one animal that can reflect on the bloodiness and choose another way. That's Christ's message. Well, it seems to be a hard lesson that we're having trouble learning. With Christ as well as Buddha and other sages, we made a leap beyond the God of the ancients to the idea of benevolent forces in the universe. But Jim, you're teaching a lesson with old stories that are lies. You're lying and you know it. Your supreme being could end the suffering if he were so powerful and truly a creator. And why does an old powerful being demand to be worshipped in the first place? Wait, Dick, hold on. Your image of God can't be that primitive. Most people don't worship because God demands it. You must know that worship comes from a fullness, not a deprivation. People who feel ineffable gratitude for being created want to express that toward something greater than they are. It's wonder and gratitude that motivates the truly spiritual person. Yes, yes, the joy of those who feel that God is imminent. They have a personal relationship. The psalmist writes, he heals the brokenhearted, he binds up all their wounds. He fixes the numbers of the stars and calls each one by name. So he calls each one of us. It's essential to the sublime experience of oneness with the cosmos. 
That's joy-based, not fear-based religion. It's still a story that you're asking us to believe without any data. The stories that come to us from tradition were written in sincere truth as they were believed at the time. The people who need to believe them as truths get comfort from them, and others can see that they may not be literally true in today's world, and they accept them as traditions, not facts. I'm afraid I'm not a missionary, Jim. Oh, I know you don't see God as an old man with a beard like the Old Testament monster who's petty and unjust, an unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic-cleansing, infanticidal, genocidal, pestilential, homophobic, sadomasochistic, and capriciously malevolent bully. But that is the picture that the Old Testament gives people, and they accept it. Your God's more sophisticated. But I'm not attacking any particular version of God. I'm attacking all gods and anything and everything supernatural. Whether you're a theist, believing God is personally dwelling within the universe with his hand on everything that transpires, like who wins the Super Bowl, or a deist, with a God like that of the 18th century Enlightenment, a grander being, sublimely aloof from our private thoughts, caring nothing for our messy sins or humble contritions. Such a God is a superphysicist, the alpha and omega of mathematicians who detonated the Big Bang and retired, never to be seen again. These days, I lump deists in with theists, since they all believe in a supreme being who created the universe. Most of the professors I encounter would call themselves agnostic. Oh, yes, agnostics. Those wishy-washy, namby-pamby, pallid, fence-sitting mediocrities. They're worse than theists, who at least can make a commitment. They refuse to admit that the question, is there or is there not a god, is not 50-50% equally possible. Probability is the issue. We may not at this time be able to prove that God does not exist, but we certainly can state that the probability that there is no God is much higher than the probability that he exists. Jim, your attitude towards teaching harmless stories, I think, should create too much conflict for you. How can you perpetuate such cognitive dissonance? You're proposing truths that you yourself admit are not true. Well, I think we can all recognize cognitive dissonance in our everyday experience. For example, we pay taxes for things we would disallow if possible. We accept behavior from those we love that we wouldn't condone if we were forced to defend it. We don't lie, but sometimes we make meaningless statements because we're pragmatic. And I would say you do it too, Dick, just to be accommodating and civilized. If they ask us, we don't tell little children that they may not grow old, but it would be reasonable to do so. Hitchcock may warn little boys about priests, but you don't go around protecting them in that style. The untruths perpetuated by religion are dangerous. That's my objection. 
I don't care if you believe that the world was made by an old woman in a basket or a whale, as long as you don't try to make everyone else believe it and kill them for it if they don't. My beef with religion is that it is so damned convinced that it is right, so everyone has to accept it as the truth. It's time we outgrew this kind of nonsense. Yeah, but you are also convinced of your truth, and you're just as adamant about denying that it can be any other way. Your truth is that there's nothing beyond the perceived world, and that negates the experience of generations of humanity who intuit that there's more to being than we can know through our sensate knowledge. Yes, I'm convinced that reason is on my side and that no one has ever shown me any evidence that there is a supernatural. But I'm not advocating war to force others to believe it. It is the need for the religious to have everyone believe to reinforce their illusions. That's what I'm standing against. I can concur with you, Dick, on that point. That religious fanaticism has created terrible crimes. Make that is creating. Okay. But you confuse religion with God. Men create religions to acknowledge their experiences of transcendence. But no one can know the nature of God. Point taken. Dick, the argument that I have with you is your insistence on attacking the illusion, as if illusion should be annihilated. The imagination is such an essential quality of what it means to be human. It gives living so much pleasure. I would guess most people get more pleasure from their illusions and imagination than from the logical reasoning that they use to survive. If I die and find myself confronted by a god demanding to know why I had not believed in him, I would answer as Bertrand Russell said he would. Not enough evidence, God. Not enough evidence. Bye, everybody. Hey, Ben. Hey, bye, ben. All right, bye, see bye, ben. you. Bye, son. Dick, where is the shadow of your certainty? We could say that the fundamentalist, religious, and atheist both suffer from the need for certainty. Why not embrace mystery? You and I know that humans perceive only a small slice of reality through our capacity to sense a small section of the electromagnetic spectrum. Physics has discovered that there are no solids, no continuous surfaces, no straight lines, only waves, no things, only energy event complexes, only behaviors, only verbs, only relationships. The mystery of eternity. Yes. Einstein wrote in his autobiography, the fairest thing we can experience is the mysterious. It is the fundamental emotion which stands at the cradle of true art and true science. He says, those who no longer feel amazement are like snuffed out candles, as good as dead. But Pascal's wager states, whatever the odds are that God exists, you are better off believing in him because if you are right, you attain eternal bliss, and if you are wrong, you won't know it anyway.
Now, isn't that a fine way of tricking the God that you espouse? I would say that you'd lead a better, fuller life if you bet on his not existing instead of squandering precious time, worshiping, sacrificing, fighting, and dying for him, especially when such evil consequences can flow from religious belief. Evil consequences such as the poisoning of the minds of young children before they can reason for themselves, torturing and maiming in the name of God, denying science. No. I prefer the awe of understanding over the awe of ignorance. Well, this is one thing we can agree on. I also deplore the refusal of many religious people to respect science and to respect different cultural influences. At least you appreciate nature, and hopefully that means respecting the earth and protecting her as God's blessed creation. And here's where I have to criticize some of my own faith who think they have the right to lord it over other creatures or to claim to believe in God's creation, but they would trash it rather than inconvenience themselves. I think that for a lot of young people, a sense of the wonder of nature has been co-opted. They're fascinated with science fiction and fantasy games. And now that's a serious addiction. Total identification with a sports team or a political party. All of these are temporary attempts to find a container for a belief in something. It's what Jung calls a search for the self, or as some might say, a search for the soul and for meaning. We should take God out of the subject-object sphere of epistemology. The concept of God can't be limited to the kind of true, false, being, non-being category. We're conflating different views of reality, different dimensions. The God question is not the same category as the science question. Existence of God may never be proved, but human nature is instinctively receptive to spirituality. Hmm. Well, Jung thought that the failure of our culture to support spirituality has resulted in great suffering and frustrated longing for something more than the material world. Totalitarian states use that propensity towards a spiritual transcendence to apply to the state itself or its leader, as in the divine emperor or North Korea's great leader. The people's desire for something greater is projected upon another human being instead of the Godhead. That immature need for something else is conditioned in us through religious education. Sure, there's an irrationality mechanism in the brain that has genetic advantages. It enables us to fall in love and have exclusive sexual relationships, which has evolutionary advantages over the more rational tendency to have multiple sexual relationships. But what can be the evolutionary advantage of believing that there's such a thing as an immortal soul to spend its post-mortal eternity in the bliss of heaven or miserable in hell? Well, maybe it has enabled people to persist in the face of extreme hardships. Viktor Frankl's observation about Holocaust survivors suggests that. The one with the capacity to hope and sustain some pleasurable fantasies, survive. 
Well, I can find plenty of pleasurable thoughts about this real universe. The beauty of the natural world, the significance of the solar system, those are enough of a pleasure for me. I don't need to make up some fairy tales in order to survive. Scientific facts and nature can be full of wonder. But faced with the drudgery of hard labor or the monotony of repetitive work at enclosed spaces or in the boredom of illness and confinement and in the relentless suffering of battle, it just may be necessary to live in one's imagination for periods of time in order to sustain the will to live. I can see that would have evolutionary value. Right. Our scientific understanding and our theories of evolution are essential aspects of the human psyche. But they're only part of the truth. We have to be careful not to destroy those irrational, unreasonable aspects of psyche. For instance, the capacity to fall in love, as you said. And we shouldn't deny that capacity to believe in stories that we tell ourselves in order to favor rational thinking. I read that Carl Jung met a Pueblo Indian in America who said, White man is crazy. He thinks only with his head and not with his heart. If you deny the importance of imagination, dreaming, symbol creation, you are that kind of white man, missing a whole dimension of human life. Look, the history of evolution is the most wonderful story. We're living it, and there is so much more to learn and tell, and it's true. Nature's amazingly numinous. What more do you need? You're right, Dick. The scientific revolution was a boon. It changed everything. We stopped looking to heaven, and we looked horizontally. We began exploring boundaries, ego boundaries, national boundaries, geographical boundaries. But like colonists, most of us captured the facts of the others that we observed and colonized and explored and studied, but not their spirits, their beliefs, their stories the culture that held their souls. And the attitudes of the Native Americans to their land was not understood or respected. Those beliefs in soul came about because they experienced the transcendent. You can be in awe of beauty, especially the beauty of nature, sunsets, stars, and so on, but unless you are transported to another dimension of reality, you do not experience the transcendent. As Jung put it, the experience of the transcendent transforms what is mortal in me to what is immortal, and it changes me. Have either of you read anything by Marvin Spiegelman? Mm. I happen to be reading one of his books right now. And it might be of interest to you. So Spiegelman, Spiegelman had this dream as a youth. Three wise men, a Jewish rabbi, a Catholic priest, and a Buddhist priest were coming to visit a new divine child. The dream led him to believe that some new way of approaching the God image is emerging in the collective psyche. He later learned that Jung was having the same idea. 
Here's what Spiegelman says about his dream. This newer experience of the divine is to be found in reconciliation among the religions of the world and their ability to worship and connect with a new content. Dick, I know you don't think of yourself as religious, but you have a strong ethical system. So just imagine that this includes atheism as a pseudo-religion, or at least a worldview as well. Spiegelman says, I think that this content, which independently emerged both in Jung and others, is a kind of psycho-religious attitude, if one can use such a word. The qualities of this attitude are, the divine transcends us all, there are many paths to it, all of which have truth or are a part of a whole, all paths are worthy. This is surely a Hindu view, a Buddhist view, a Jewish view, a Christian view, and Dick, I would add, an atheist's view. I continue. But only for some sects or branches of each one, there seems to be some expectation or desire that the new divine child, Savior, is to appear outside ourselves rather than inside. Thus, there is the awaited Messiah, the second coming, the fulfillment of the prophecy, and in a more modern vein, the sense that our Earth will encounter consciousness from other planets or stars. They could be right, but it's Jung's and Buddhism's gift to us to look for that emergence from within our own souls. So we all will have a lot to do with ourselves until that outer Buddha, Christ, Messiah appears. God willing, it will be synchronistic. It is noted that in Jewish lore that when every Jew observes Shabbat, the Messiah will appear. To extrapolate, when all of us are in tune with the divine presence, he, she, it will manifest among us all. Spiegelman's optimistic picture seems far from possible in this age of religious strife, holy wars, and cynicism. But throughout history, there have been men like Jung and Spiegelman who stand for the power of the uniting principle to transform what others and often appears doomed. We might think of the divine child as a new attitude or a new paradigm rather than a literal being. Mm. Ah, 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 ah. Ben, Ben, what happened? Some guys jumped and beat on me. I tried to fight back, but there were three of them. Did you know them, son? Yeah, they go to my school. Has this happened to you before? Uh, they never hit me, but they always mess with me, bump into me in the halls and laugh or knock my books out of my arms. Ben, baby, what happened? He got jumped on he by bullies. He was attacked. Oh, poor child. Yeah, we need to call the principal. What school do you go to? He goes to Sacred Heart of Jesus. No, don't call them. Don't tell anyone. Then they'll really F me over. Leave it alone. I'm okay. 
Where do you think you're going? I have to go. Oh, you're staying right here, bud, till I say you can go. Is your mom at work today? Yes, and don't call her. She's at work, and I'm not calling her. I'm fine. I know his mom. Uh, I get it, Ben. I won't speak with her unless you want me to. His mom will handle it okay. She's got a good head on her shoulders. Meanwhile, you stay here till one of us can take you home. Don't call her. But look, I'm missing Ben's... Sacred heart. I'll talk to you, Mr. Levine. I know him well. And I'll take you home. Or, or, or wherever you want, when you're ready. So just stay still for a few minutes and give yourself a chance to settle down, son. Well, Carla, nice little Christian kids, right? So full of compassion. Ben, don't worry about the band practice. We'll make sure that Mr. Levine knows what's happening. You know, it may be good that this has come out into the open and you won't need to face it alone anymore. Mark Levine is a very cool guy. You know, he, he's a great musician, too. Did you guys know that he plays at the jazz club on weekends? Mm. Yeah, that's right. I've heard him several times. He's good. <sighs> hey, do you all know about Rashawn? The story of Rashawn Roland Kirk? I've just been learning about him. He was popular in the 80s. Yeah. Rashawn is an incredible blind musician well-known in the world of jazz and he credits his dreams for inspiration. When he was four, his uncle came over to play piano, and Rashans picked up a garden hose and started blowing, improvising an accompaniment to the melodies. And then as an adult, he dreamed he found an unusual instrument, and he figured out how to play it. So when he came across an obsolete musical instrument in an antique store, he knew how it would sound when refurbished because he had already heard it in a dream. Hmm. Listen to this. He told an interviewer, I constantly think about music and I hear things which I try to play during my waking hours. One night about five years ago, I dreamed I was playing three instruments at once. The sounds and feeling coincided with what I had been seeking on one instrument. When I got the gift of playing two or three horns, that wasn't for making money. It was a gift that was given to me through dreams, and I felt that it was a gift given to me from the Supreme Being. I felt this was my contribution to the music of the universe. Rashawn realizes he has an ability that most people don't have, and since he did nothing to create it, he attributes it to something beyond himself. That's an example of what I was trying to say. Research might show that Rashan has outstanding features in his temporal lobe, but I wouldn't ask him to substitute that explanation of his gift for his account. Would anything be gained? Would it change his dream of contributing to the music of the universe? I always enjoy stories from artists who can't explain their inspiration. The writer who says it felt like someone dictated the story to him, or the painter who felt something guiding her brush. I'll play something by him so you can hear him for yourselves. I just got this CD a couple of days ago, and I love it. 
Molly plays petite floor. All listen for a while. Then Molly starts dancing around by herself. Jim joins and dances with her in his arms. Dick and Carla watch, smiling, drinking and eating. Then Carla pulls Dick to his feet and makes him dance. Ben looks embarrassed, sips his Coke and laughs. They all dance. The cast in order of appearance are Peggy Sanders as Molly, Eduardo Silva as Dick Rollins, Jillian Richmond as Carla Young, David Romero as Jim O'Brien, Ronnie Bergeron as Ben. The play was written by Delvin McNeely. <laughs>